The rest of us will be in Leviticus chapter 5 and 6. I ask you to go ahead and turn to Leviticus now, if you would, and let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. If I haven't met you before, my name is Eric Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Pat is on vacation for a couple of weeks with his family, and I'm up from the South Campus down in Bellevue, and we are just uh, thrilled to be here. If I haven't met you before, it's good to see you. And good to meet you, and I'd love to say hi to you afterwards if we can. And it's great also to see familiar faces and friends as well, and just be encouraged in the grace of Christ even this morning. Let's go ahead and read God's Word together. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 14, all the way down through chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord... He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven." If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, If he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or by the deposit that was committed to him or lost the thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we do thank you this very hour for your word that comes from you, that comes to us. Even the very words are breathed out, sourced in you. They come to us that we may read, we may know your will, we may know your mind, we may know what you require and what you provide and how you think, that we might think your thoughts after you. And we come this morning, not in judgment of your word, but your word in judgment of us, asking that it would do its work according to your spirit in our lives. We recognize that we are not conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, even this hour. So we pray that you would... Have the Good Shepherd speak to us through His Word that He might speak tenderly and clearly to our hearts as He promises to do, even as the Master says Himself that His sheep hear His voice, for you know Him, you know the sheep, and they follow 
the Savior. So help us this very hour, especially in this topic of guilt, with our own consciences and our own minds, that we might find ourselves fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, the guilt offering. We pray these things in His name and for His sake. Amen. Please take your seats. Well, to say that guilt is uncomfortable is probably something of an understatement. It's unsettling, it's disturbing. The reality that our enjoyment of things that we love or value could be hindered, or the fact that we could possibly lose something that we love or value because of something we have done, is almost devastating to us. I was reminded of this last night in a very simple, sincere, childlike manner. Our little girl, Alexis, who is five, um, got into a little trouble with her sister. And my wife, because she's a good mom who loves her children, went in to discipline them and speak with them. And I was doing something else, and I came back by after, and I heard Alexis sobbing on her sister. And I went in, and I, I spoke to Alexis, and I said just simply, Why are you crying? And she managed to get some words together and said, because I love God. Now, I don't know precisely her theological understanding and what all that means and what her thought process was at the moment, but I do know that she felt guilty and her conscience was bothering her. And obviously the discipline that her mother lovingly inflicted caused her to some degree of remorse and contrition. But what we have with her guilt and her conscience, is a very childlike expression of what we have in the book of Leviticus. Because in Leviticus, we have the reality of a holy God who has prescribed His commandments and said, you must follow and obey Me. And the slightest variation or infraction therein from these commandments causes a breach in the relationship, a fracture in the relationship, so that fellowship is broken. And the true Hebrew worshiper would have, much like Alexis, probably with a more theological precision and understanding, may have sobbed and wept and said, but I love God. I want to be in His presence. I want forgiveness. So that kind of childlike picture shows the level of guilt from a kid. And again, I don't know all of her thoughts and how that would have connected in her mind. But I do know the context of Leviticus, and that is the picture of someone who has realized their guilt before a holy God and they need to deal with it. The context of Leviticus in the unfolding of Revelation in the Scripture is that God is, in the book of Exodus, He has taken His people out of the land of Egypt. He's done that with a strong, outstretched, mighty arm. He's redeemed them from Egypt, from slavery. And he's brought them out in there. At this point, they are in the desert and they are on their quest to march into the promised land. God has given them the law in the book of Exodus. And then we see, following the giving of the law, that God is giving prescription of how this tabernacle, the tabernacle is basically a temporary temple. And the whole point of the tabernacle is that God is going to dwell with His people. He's going to be in their presence and the people could come and have fellowship with God. God is giving Him the greatest thing He could give Himself to His people. So in Exodus 25 and following, we see God give prescription to Moses of how this is to be, how this is to be designed and to reflect perfectly, as Hebrews tells us, the divinely heavenly tabernacle itself. 
So it's a reflection of something transcendent coming down as God is to dwell with His people. But there's a problem at the end of the book of Leviticus, at the end of the book of Exodus. We have the tabernacle. We have God displaying His holiness, His glory, His beauty in front of the people so that the people are just in awe. And whenever you see the glory of God, whenever you see the holiness of God, you have a simultaneous realization of your sin. As you stand in the presence of an almighty, holy God. Just like Isaiah himself would put his hand over his face and said, Behold, I am ruined. Just like the men in the boat with Jesus who fell on their face and said, Away from me, Lord, for I am an unholy man. And we have the book of Leviticus coming. And really what the point is in Leviticus is you must be holy for God is holy. And there's a way to breach that large chasm of God's infinite holiness. That is to say He's separate, yes, from sin, but He's separate from everything. He's totally and completely perfect and clean and good and holy and perfect. To breach that chasm from His holiness to our sinfulness so that Sinners may go into the presence of God and enjoy His presence. Enjoy fellowship with Him. Enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And that's the point. How do sinners enjoy the presence of God? How do sinners demonstrate holiness in their life? How do the people of God reflect God's holiness? And that's really the context which drives us into chapter 6. If we were to have time, we could unpack the offerings. There's five offerings in the first uh, six chapters, really the first eight as it unfolds the priest's responsibilities. And there's different aspects of how it affects the relationship, whether it's tribute or, or propitiation or uh, the obedience that is required as you bring tribute to God or the sin offering. And here we have the guilt offering. By the name, it is to deal with guilt. And I should say this is not a justification passage, or how do you gain access to the people of God? How do you become, in our, in our terms, a Christian? How do you become a believer? This is for the people of God, for believers, how they maintain their fellowship of God. And this is in the context of the Levitical time, which we know as we read the rest of the Bible, specifically the book of Hebrews, that this was a temporary time, a shadow which pointed forward to what? The substance, which is Christ. We know that everything in the book of Leviticus would ultimately point forward to Jesus Christ. Various aspects of His work. So if we're talking about the burnt offering, it's the consecration to God, propitiation from sin. The sin offering, obviously dealing with sins in a general sense. And here the guilt offering, the guilt of sin in a specific sense. And we know that all of the Scriptures, if we could say what is the the big picture of the Scripture, is all pointing forward to Jesus Christ and His glory, and His greatness. So we're going to study this passage this morning like a Christian would study the passage. We remember the the Master as He rose from the dead and He walked on the Emmaus Road with His disciples. And they were very discouraged and they didn't understand what had happened. How this Jesus who was supposed to be the Messiah was crucified and died and some believed He had resurrected and they didn't know. And Jesus, it says in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and the rest of the prophets, opened the Scriptures to them. Explain to them everything concerning Himself in the Scriptures. Oh, what a glorious seven-mile walk that must have been. As Christ began, no doubt, in Leviticus and Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and worked through Isaiah and Daniel and just unloaded everything on these guys that they could see the glory of Christ. And they recalled later, was not our hearts burning within us as He opened the Scriptures to us? 
I'll admit to you, my prayer and my burden is that as we look at Leviticus 5 and 6, specifically the, the, the guilt offering, that our hearts would burn within us. As Christ in His glory, in His greatness, in His work, in and through the gospel, might be clearly seen by us that you might find confidence and joy in Jesus Christ and valuing Him. All of these things ultimately pointing to Christ. And this guilt offering shows that sin incurs a debt before a holy God. So how do you square things up? There must be a sacrifice. What is the sacrifice? It must be blood. What type of sacrifice? It must be unblemished. It must be acceptable to God. And in this case, even a restitution must be brought. So the big picture this morning, what is the main point? The main point is God is holy as is the theme of Leviticus. God is holy, and you are required to be holy as well. Even as the book of 1 Peter picks up this same passage. Failure to be holy incurs a debt which we are required to repay. Just as the Hebrews were required to repay. So what do we do about this? We're going to look at this morning, hopefully have that answered, but we're going to look at two specific settings here in Leviticus which God requires us to perfectly reflect His holiness. Two specific settings. First, in our personal devotion to God, and second, in our personal dealings with others. Personal devotion to God is first, that's in chapter 5, and then personal dealings with others in chapter 6. So let's buckle up and we'll jam through this and look and hopefully see something more of Christ and His greatness and how God deals with sinners with regard to guilt. So let's look first at the personal devotion to God. We are to reflect perfect holiness in our personal devotion to Him. This is chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. And we look right away at the text. The Lord, verse 14, if you look with me, spoke to Moses. I, I just want to stop right there because if, if you are reading through Leviticus, you're seeing over and over again this phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses. In this Lord term, Yahweh, as we are speaking of God Almighty is injected with all types of meaning. And I suppose whatever your background is, you inject to that term, Lord. But to the, the Israelite, this Lord is the sovereign, almighty creator and sustainer of life. He is the one who has no beginning and no end. He's the always there, sovereign one. He's the God of the universe. That is the God of the Bible. He is the Lord, the Almighty. And He reigns. And we are supposed to understand specifically when we read through Leviticus that there's something of a danger dealing with this God, this Lord. I mean, after all, He demands perfect holiness. And we see Him later on in Leviticus actually tracking down a couple of His renegade priests who thought they could be flippant and go ahead and offer, as the text says, strange fire to God. And you might recall what happened to the sons of Aaron when they did that. He killed them instantly. There was fire that came down from heaven and consumed them. So there is something dangerous about this God. He's unflinching in His holiness. He has omniscient eyes. He sees everything. He is just rigid in His requirements for perfection and glory and worship. He is God. This may be a little bit of a shock to us if we're at all familiar with the contemporary evangelical movement which tends to downplay God and show God as a more relaxed, casual, different God than maybe our staunchly rigid Puritan forefathers might have looked at Him. 
You know, he wears jeans now, he's relaxed. He's not all uptight. After all, we come to God casually, just as you are. He's fine. He's understanding. It's just relaxed. Church is about you. It's about being relaxed and easy, casual, user-friendly. This is anything but what you see in the Bible, specifically Leviticus. This is probably more of a deviation from the God that's revealed in the Bible than the fact that God has relaxed His insistence upon holiness and purity. In fact, we have deviated away if we see God more as a cosmic grandpa or cosmic Santa Claus than the almighty Yahweh, Lord God of the universe. There's some danger in dealing with this God. You might say, oh, that's just Old Testament. Acts chapter 5, early church, kills a husband and a wife for messing around and lying against the Holy Spirit. There's some danger in dealing with this God. Leviticus sketches a God who's unfathomably holy, worthy of fear. He refuses to be domesticated. He makes worshipers a bit off-balanced, uncomfortable, and intimidating. But at the same time, He's so irresistibly glorious, so attractive in His goodness, so lovely in His power, He's so fascinating in His holiness, and so appealing in His mercy and grace, that you must go to the tabernacle. You must Go to His presence. You have to worship Him because He's so good. He's so glorious. Oh yeah, He's dangerous. But He is so good. He's so worthy. And what you have is this heart-pounding, reverent, humble, whole-souled worship of the Lord God, Yahweh, that pervades every area of their lives. And again, we mustn't neglect the fact that verse 14 says, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is God speaking. He's speaking to His people. He's instructing His people how they should maintain fellowship with Him. Specifically in the context of dealing with guilt. How do you deal with guilt before a holy God? How do we deal with guilt? Well, first we see something of an instruction on unintentional sinning with regard to, as the text says in verse 15 and 16, holy things. First, what are these holy things of the Lord? Well, we know that anything that is actually dedicated to God becomes holy. So if anything is brought for an offering or is given to the priest, it's considered holy. And anything that's property of the temple itself would be holy. So in a broad sense, this would include any scandalous things like sneaking in and taking things that don't belong to you. You know, maybe stealing a little bit of meat, running off with some flour, some of the offerings, stealing from the priest, that sort of thing. Obviously, that would be a broad infraction. But there's also a more general sense in which the holy things of the Lord would probably deal with your individual handling and compliance with the sacrificial system. What do you do with the tithes? What do you do with the first fruits? What do you do with your offerings? Are you bringing actual acceptable offerings to God? There are specifics in these offerings. And the text says, it goes on in verse 15, and anyone commits a breach of faith. And what is this term, breach of faith? We see it in the book of Numbers, chapter 5, verse 12, to refer to a woman who is unfaithful to her husband. It says that she goes astray from her husband and commits adultery. We see in Second Chronicles, it vividly shown to represent King Ahaz. He would be in the bad king category if you're keeping track. He thought it would be fine to go ahead and close the temple doors and set up spiritual outposts all over Israel so that people could come in and worship. And he also thought it would be a nice idea if he went ahead and pawned off some of the temple materials to Syria. thought it would be a nice tribute to give them. 
gave all, all of the holy things to the enemies. And it says in Second Chronicles 28, verse 22, at the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. That is a breach of faith, the same term is what he has done, and he provoked God to anger. In fact, it is this breach of faith that actually you see in the book of Ezekiel where the prophet picks up on this and it says that this is the faithless acts that actually brings about the um, captivity where God brings in Babylon and Assyria to judge his people. So it's faithfulness, faithlessness to the covenant, faithlessness to the commandments. And it says here that they did it unintentionally. They've sinned. They've sinned against God's commandments with some regard. But specifically, we know, it deals with the personal devotion of the worshiper to the Lord. Something in regard to the covenant community where God is to be worshipped and they have not offered perfectly a sacrifice. Maybe the blemished lamb. Maybe it's not a complete tithe. Maybe it is some other oversight that they have done. At any rate, they have incurred debt. That's what the text says. And restitution is required. I think it's helpful to note, just by way of principles and application as we look at this, that God Himself cares about how He's worshipped. You notice that He's incredibly detailed here as to how He is to be worshipped. It's not all about sincerity, but it's about obedience. It's not all about how you feel, it's about holiness. It reminds me of John chapter 4 when the Samaritan woman and Jesus were having the conversation and she says, yeah, you Jews say you worship in Jerusalem and we worship on the mountain. And, you know, kind of implying that there's some type of relativeness here between the two. We worship what we want. You worship what you want. And Jesus said, you worship what you don't know. In other words, Jesus was saying, you're wrong. That's not true worship. God requires worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. So sincerity... No matter how sincere people are, it's not the ultimate measure of acceptance before God, but rather holiness and compliance with what His Word says. This is very important for us living in a relativistic, plural, Christian, post-Christian culture. It's not all about how you feel and how sincere you are. You can be sincere as you want to be, but you can be sincerely wrong. And God can be sincerely angry. And you can be in sincere trouble. The whole noble adolescent concept that we must do our best and that's good enough. That, that may be good for little leaguers, but it doesn't work for worshiping Yahweh. He wants holiness. And they did not align with God's prescribed articulation of holiness and now there's a debt. And what's God's answer to this debt? And really we see this, this theme throughout this whole section. And I'm just giving it to you. The way of, on the front, we see that there's compensation given, there's restitution, and there's expiation. And you're like, man, big words early Sunday morning, come on. Real important words. Compensation. Well, you gotta come and you gotta pay back and actually give above what was taken. Restitution. You better restore what was taken. And expiation. You gotta get rid of your guilt. And we see that with regard to adding a fifth to it, extra percentages, or bringing the ram, and then actually dealing with the guilt. So let's look first at this compensation. It's actually a ram that we see here. God requires that as a result of sin, the guilt comes from the worshiper. He is to offer a ram. As verse 15 says, He shall bring to the Lord as His compensation a ram without blemish. Now, if you're reading through Leviticus, it's like over and over and over again, Ram. This is the first ram, but you have a bull. You have 
from the flock. You have lambs. You have all, all kinds of animals over and over and over again. And it's continual killing of the animals. And you might say, if you're a Peter sympath- Peter sympathizer, you might be like, man, this is, this is enough. God is not obsessed with killing animals. It's not the point. God's obsessed with holiness. And people are sinners, and He wants to deal rightly with sinners. So the animals become a suitable representative for the people to have their guilt and their sin dealt with. And actually, as an aside, it kind of elevates animals. It would make Peter happy because they're valuable. They're not just to be, you know, floors or alligator boots or something like that. There's actually value to the animal. But as you're reading through it over and over and over again, you are intended to look at this and say, are you kidding me? Another chapter with animals to die. Another type of animal. Another specific animal that needs to die. And another issue, the guilt offering or the sin offering or the grain offering or the the burnt offering. Are you telling me another animal over and over and over and over again? You are supposed to get sick of it. And you're supposed to say, enough! Can we please have something that's sufficient, that satisfies this holy God? Enough with going to the the flock or going to the herd and bringing the animal and slitting its throat and throwing its blood at the altar of burnt offering. Enough with this already. Can we finally have sufficiency? Can we finally deal with my conscience? Can we finally deal with my guilt? I need a Savior. That's what we need. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be exhausted reading Leviticus, crying out for a Savior that's sufficient. The worshiper has incurred guilt by his sin, and now in order to make atonement, he has to look not inward for relief, but outward for relief. He needs help outside of himself. And in this case, it's a ram. It's going to compensate God for a theft of glory, for a breach of faith. And that's what he does, a ram, verse 15, without blemish, out of the flock. Notice it is to be a ram without blemish. Just like all the other offerings, this offering is to not have any defects or blemish. It is to say it is a perfect ram. You cannot just go pick up one that's hobbling on the side of the road with some type of mange or something like that. No, this is costly. It is perfect. And you must go get the ram and you must bring it. Because it's going to be offered in the place of an imperfect worshiper. And furthermore, the text says that it is, if you look at verse 15, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And this is a bit obscure, and most people would would say that based upon the the level of the time and the value of rams or other animals may go up or down, and it it was some type of objective standard to value how much the rams were worth. So it had to meet the level of worth that was determined by the sanctuary. So, so it goes up and it goes down. And the reason primarily, as you see as we keep reading, is that as they had to add a fifth to it or 20% to it, it had to be based on some objective number that they had to add to it. So there is the compensation. What is the compensation? It is a ram. But there's also restitution. Verse 16 says, He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and add a fifth to it. Add a fifth to what? Add a fifth to the ram. 20% extra. You have stolen glory from God by not keeping His commandments. You better bring a sacrifice and then you better add extra. Let's pay the penalty for sin. And this is what it was. He was bringing the animal. And the priest is required to administer the, the penalty. He is required to slice the, 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 the ram's throat and to pour the blood in a basin and splatter it at the, the altar of burnt offering. 
as a demonstration of atonement to God. And then an additional amount, 20% extra for restitution. And then there's expiation. Look at verse 16. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. That is the atonement dealing with his sin. And he shall be what? Forgiven. That means that his guilt has been removed. God's no longer angry at this individual. The guilt has been removed. The worshiper's sin violated God's holiness. And now in response to the sin, he's going to bring the offering, bring the ram, bring his 20%. He's going to give it. And now his guilt is removed. So we see something of God's gracious design and how He handles believers in their sin. But there's a second aspect to this kind of uncomfortable, dangerous relationship, if you will, with God, but at the same time, it's irresistibly attractive. As a worshiper, you you might be sitting in your little tent as a Hebrew, and you might be contemplating the the divine commands, the words that God has spoken to Moses, and you're, you're going through them in your mind. And as you think about your offerings, and you think about your life, and your own sin, and God's holiness, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I know there's something I haven't done right. I know there's something that I've done wrong. What will ever become of me? I mean, we're talking about a God who's so precise that He actually takes people out for their lack of holiness. He loves holiness. And here we are, just little Hebrew worshipers, and we're saying, what about us? What if I did something wrong? I know you can relate to this. If you sat and been sensitive to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and read the Word, and maybe even read something like Psalm 119, and say, this is supposed to be the model for what a Christian looks like, and you read through it, and you say, I fall so short. You feel guilt. You feel the guilt. No doubt we've all had a professor or teacher who is famous for not giving A's. And you hand in your paper, your well-crafted, well-reasoned, perfect-in-your-view paper, and you give it to the professor or the teacher, and they look at it, and you know there's no way you're getting an A. If you're fortunate, you may get a B. And they take it, and they mark it up, and they find all kinds of things that you had no idea were in there. They turn it back, and you get a B-. minus. Can you imagine the uncertainty, the apprehension, the uneasiness that would accompany the Hebrew on a daily basis thinking about their sinful heart in relation to God's perfect law and the testimony of the bleeding of lambs and and bulls and coming into the temple and uh, the tabernacle and just seeing the blood and seeing the priest and all of this and seeing your own sin and saying, whatever will I do? How can I get into His presence? What will ever become of me? I know there's things that I haven't done right and I know there's things that I've forgotten to do? Well, in verse 17 through 18, we see something of God's gracious provision. Look at verse 17. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it. Do you see that? Though he did not know it. And the realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. So the worshiper's conscience is accusing him, saying, you have not measured up. Maybe he's even suffering some sort of physical discipline from the Lord. And he's wondering what in the world he's done. How do I get out from under God's thumb of judgment? I am done. I am undone. They know they haven't done everything right. They don't know precisely what it is. They bear their iniquity. And so what do they do? Look at verse 18. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock. 
or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake, as the New American Standard translates it, the error that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. You see the compensation. It is a ram without blemish. There's expiation. The priest makes atonement. His guilt is removed. In his consolation, the Lord says the words, He shall be forgiven. You see, He shall be forgiven. And notice that the Hebrew worshiper is not sitting in his tent saying, Hey, you know, I better give Moses. I got a great idea. What we're going to go ahead and do is go ahead and back up to God and ask Him. Maybe if we can work something out that we could have maybe a big general guilt offering for sins that I may have committed that I don't even know about. And maybe we can work something out. This isn't happening. It isn't people initiating with God, but God graciously initiating with His people and saying, I want to console your wounded, broken, holiness-inflicted conscience. I want to console you. I want to give you forgiveness. You just see how God cares about consoling those who are broken by their sin in His holiness. These people are hurting. They feel guilt. They desire the presence of God, the blessing of God, the joy of fellowship with Him. But they know He's holy and they know that they are sinners. But God cares for them. He's a loving God. The God of the covenant is a loving, covenant-keeping, faithful God. He's holy. But He's so good. I'm sure you can identify with the Hebrew worshiper at this point, can't you? I know I can. If you're like me, you, you feel that maybe you have not measured up, as I said, Psalm 119, or, or maybe some other commands in the Scripture, or maybe you get upset at your wife or your children or your neighbor, or maybe you're selfishly fantasizing about your own excellence, or whatever you may have. And you find yourself inflicted with your conscience or the Holy Spirit's conviction. And what is the first thing you do? I'm going to go read my Bible. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go do some good things. I'm going to go make atonement for myself by getting my wife some flowers. I'm going to take my kids for ice cream. I'm going to work harder at my job. You see what we're doing. Let me go make atonement for myself because of my guilt. That's not the means of dealing with our sin. It wasn't the means of dealing with the sin in the Levitical economy. It's not the means of dealing with it now. What you, in effect, are doing is saying, let me just go ahead and scratch God a little penance check. Let me scratch Him a little bribe. Let me go pull into my pocket and give to God. Go read your Bible. Go love your wife. Go love your kids. Go pray. Go do all those things. But not as a means of removing your guilt before a holy God because it's not going to do it. But go do all those things because God has removed your guilt before Him through His Son. Because God indeed provides a means for the guilt to be removed. Just like Abraham said to his son Isaac, God indeed will provide the sacrifice. Well, God has provided another ram, a greater ram, a ram that is far exceeding the value of the Levitical ram. We're talking about a ram whose atonement is forever acceptable before God. A ram whose blood stands even right now, the one-time offering as your compensation before God, as your restitution and as your expiation. God sent His beloved Son to be the guilt offering for sinners' sins. It's Jesus who's provided perfect obedience to all of the holy things of the Lord. It's Jesus who's perfectly fulfilled all of God's commands and has not had one breach of faith. It is Jesus who has always done what is pleasing to the Father. It is Jesus Christ who is the only one who could ever say, which one of you convicts me of sin? 
And the Pharisees for once in the Gospels were silent. It is Jesus alone who could have the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It is Jesus who could say, I delight to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. It is only Christ who was born under the law to redeem those from the law. It is only Christ's obedience and perfection that could stand as your surety even right now before God. It is Christ who is the blessed ram who fulfilled everything that is required. He's not only the, the ram, He's also the priest. And He's offered Himself up for your sin to be your guilt offering. Scripture says in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. No wonder Matthew 12 quotes Isaiah 42 and says, In Him my soul delights. Continually, ongoingly, the Father delights in the Son. See, there's not one ounce of leaven in His sacrifice. There's no imperfections in His altar. There's no blemish in Him as the ram. He's no skimping on the first fruits or tithes or offerings. Jesus Christ offered perfection perfectly, once for all, as the guilt offering. That's why Isaiah, looking forward to this time, says, Yet it was the will of the Lord, of the pleasure of the Lord, to crush Him, the cross, to put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. The Father crushed Jesus as your guilt offering. Do you see how foolish it is to run to make self-atonement? When Christ made atonement, when Christ satisfied the Father's righteousness, when Christ is your holiness, so foolish to run and to try to burn a little something of good works over here to remove our guilt so our conscience feels better. We're not to wander around questioning our guilt before a holy God, wondering if at any point His righteous retribution will break out. See, on the one hand, we avoid guilt. We feel guilty and we turn away from it and just say, I don't want to deal with it. Or on the other hand, we might wallow in the guilt, just like the prodigal son in the pea pods of the pig pen, wallowing in it. And neither one of them is the biblical balance. Guilt's to have the rightful place in your life. It's to be a blessed chauffeur that, that drives you to the cross where you see the, the Savior suffering perfectly for your sin. Making full atonement. Removing guilt. So we don't run from guilt and we don't wallow in guilt. It's not to be an end in and of itself. It's to be that blessed chauffeur, that, that divinely dispatched taxi that drives you to Calvary. Let guilt have its rightful place. Let it drive you to Jesus. That's where you're supposed to go. You see, the only one who could make an end to your sin, who's finally poured himself out before the altar of burnt offering as your means of expiation or removal of guilt. The biggest thing I see in growing Christians' lives that they struggle with as a pastor is guilt and self-atonement. I love all these offerings, but if I get one week to be here, it's to, it's to jump on the guilt offering because it's the, I know it's what I struggle with. I know it's what you struggle with. How do you deal with your guilt? Do you run to the cross? Or do you run to the altar to burn little incense of self-devotion to God. 
Christ, again, is the means and the motivation for Christian holiness. God cares about how He's worshipped. He wants personal devotion to Him. He provides the means here for the, the Hebrews, but as a shadow pointing forward ultimately to Jesus Christ, who is our guilt offering, even as Isaiah says. So yes, reflect perf- perfect holiness in your personal devotion to God. Now secondly, reflect personal holiness in your personal dealings with others. Verses, this is chapter 6 up to verse 7. You see in verse 2, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, we should just stop right there. Notice what it says. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith, what does it say? Against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. You see how the, the essence of this sin is primarily vertical. The, the scope of it is he's deceiving his neighbor. But the reality of the fact is that the sin at its very core is primarily vertical before it's horizontal. We see that with, with David when he had sinned with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He committed adultery. He murdered. He had her husband killed. He lied. He sinned against his country. He sinned against his family. He sinned against countless people. But yet David could say with truthfulness, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. It's an attack upon God's holiness. So while we're confessing sins to one another and dealing with our own personal sins, we must remember at its very root, our sin is against God. And we see something here is the way that this unpacks here, the specifics as how the covenant community was going to live. It says in verse 2, how he does it by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit, security, or through robbery. So you have three, three manners. Deposit, security, robbery. Deposit, since there were no banks in the ancient culture, you'd go away, you're going to go on a journey for, your, for weeks or months or whatever the case may be. You take your valuables and you bring it to, as it says here, neighbor. But neighbor is probably too broad of a term. It's, it would actually be a close friend or associate. So you bring your stuff to your neighbor. And then you come back from your journey and you say, hey, where's my stuff? And they look at you and say, stuff? I don't have your stuff. Well, what happened to it? You know, whatever. Lost it. Sold it. Whatever he did. But they don't have it. And then there's security. Now, if somebody was going to go and and get a loan of some money, then they put down a security deposit that they're going to actually pay the money back. But at the end of the loan, when it's all repaid, this individual decided, I'm not giving you back the deposit. This is deceitful. And they keep the money for themselves. And finally, there's robbery, as it says. And that's pretty self-explanatory, running in and stealing something from somebody else. And then verse 3 says, oppressing his neighbor. I'm sorry, verse 2. Probably better translated, extorting. In his commentary on Leviticus, John Hartley, I think, gives us a little bit of help historically. And I just want to read through this. He says, extortion classifies the getting of another's goods or money legally but immorally. One way it's done is by withholding what a person has the right to receive, such as wages for a task done. So, not paying somebody when they're due. Another kind of extortion is twisting the law to squeeze out another out of his property. So, some type of backdoor swindling to get the property from them. And the third major concern is a situation where the person finds something another has lost then desires having done so with lies. And this is probably what he has in view here. So, let's say somebody finds their shovel or whatever and they say, hey, that's my shovel. 
They say, no, I don't think so. And now you've got the situation where these two people, it's one guy's word against the other guy's word, and what do they do? They, they couldn't get him in court and, and really determine who did what, so they just said, okay, you make an oath before God. Did you take it? Did you not take it? And the assumption is that God, because He's holy, He would, he would then turn around and judge the one who was lying and deal with him. But even here, God provides a, a means for one who's under conviction to say, you know, maybe it's too late in the game. He's got too much in on this sin. And to say, you know, just pull back. I've sinned. Here's your shovel. And I'm going to bring the atonement. I'm going to bring the compensation, the restitution. And I'm going to bring, have the expiation. You see Jesus pick up on the same thing. If you're at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go and make what's right. It says in verse 5 of he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it. So he's going to add 20% extra to the value. So we've said shovel, so 20% extra on the shovel, whatever the value of it is. You go and you give extra back. You see something here of the moral courage to confess when you've done something wrong to somebody else. No doubt it'd be difficult because now we're at odds between one another. And you, and I know that's my shovel. And you're holding it. Now you come back and you say, Here's the shovel, here's 20%, and I'm going to make my offering. Perhaps it would be easier to forgive somebody if they showed the, dem- the outward signs of contrition like that are outlined here. And perhaps it would be easier to forgive people if we realized how sinful we truly are ourselves. But notice the goal here is that God wants forgiveness and harmony and peace in the covenant community. It says that they'll be forgiven. So again, he's provided the expiation. I think one thing to, to observe here by terms of principles of just application, this does kind of get rid of that fake line that sometimes we draw between sacred and secular. I mean, God wants holiness when you deal with the sanctuary and he wants holiness in dealing with the shovel. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, God wants absolute holiness and absolute perfection. So it's not, I go to work, I do my thing, I do church, I do my thing here. God wants absolute holiness across the board. Maybe that's why First Peter says, if husbands don't live with their wives in an understanding way and show them honor as a joint heir of grace, that their prayers are hindered. Men, have we read that verse recently? That our access to God, our fellowship with God, our communion with God is actually hindered because we're being ungodly husbands. There's something to think about. We notice that God demands that the scales must be balanced out and that sinners can't balance it out on their own. We know from reading the rest of the Bible that animals are not an end of themselves, but a means to point to the ultimate end, which is Jesus Christ. But the principle of substitution of a blameless sacrifice in your place to make atonement for you pervades all of Scripture. And that is what it is to do, is to point us forward to Christ. God saves rebels in Christ. God keeps rebels holy in Christ. Do you see yourself in this passage? Well, maybe some of us are saying, hey, I haven't stolen from anybody recently. I don't deceive people of money. I don't rob them. I don't exhort from people. And thanks be to God that you don't do that. But I'd encourage you to think a little bit more broadly. Dare I say, cosmically. You and I, we were created to 
rightly reflect God, to give Him glory, to please Him, to enjoy Him in everything and through everything. That is the whole purpose why God made man, that we would rightly reflect Him back to Him in His holiness and represent Him in dealing with people, to give Him glory and to give Him worship. But you know as well as I do that neither one of us have. None of us have given God the glory that He deserves. This, this, at the end of the day, is cosmic felony. We take God's creation, we turn it inward. Instead of loving people as ourselves, we use people perhaps for our own glory and our own pleasure and we find our ultimate delight in people, things, and stuff instead of God Himself. This is cosmic treason. This is robbing from God, stealing from His treasury, replacing God in all kinds of reproachable ways. We do stand guilty. So, so maybe, and I'll just keep yelling over the rain. God's sovereign, so it's giving me a voice. I, we, we don't sneak into our neighbor's house and rob under the cover of darkness, but maybe publicly and loudly belittle God's glory, mock His goodness, His words trustfulness. We steal, deceive, and use people and undermine God and His glory. There's, there's guilt here for us too. All we have to do is think about it a little bit. Deceivers, robbers, thieves. On a cosmic scale, we're guilty. So what do we do? You want fellowship with God? You want peace with God? You want access to God? But you're a sinner. He is holy. What in the world do we do? What is God's answer to this? But if there's guilt for us, just as in Leviticus, there's provision for us. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save such sinners as you and me. Just as the ram was sanctioned by God to be the means by which the Hebrews received forgiveness for their sins, Christ is the sacrifice sanctioned by God to receive forgiveness now. In fact, as we've already seen, the ram pointed forward to Christ and His work. God has provided the only suitable substitute for you. He's given you the substitute, the suitable substitute for forgiveness. He's provided one Savior with unblemished, unpeccable character to stand in your place. You have His righteous life, complete obedience to all the commandments, complete and full devotion to the Lord. And we cling to that righteousness by faith. Then you have His death as the offering before God that takes the penalty away because we did not love God and love neighbor perfectly. We did not obey the commandments. Don't you see the twins of Christ's work? His righteous life... His perfect death. This canceling out the fact that we couldn't measure up. And there gloriously, He gives it to His people. He charges us with His righteousness. So that when God looks at a sinner like me, He doesn't see my weakness. He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my lack of conformity to God's will and His, His Word and the death penalty that's due me. He sees Christ's work in me. How glorious is it that He's the guilt offering? That's exactly what He is. That's why He's the Savior. This God has done to save sinners like us. He loves to narrate the story of His holiness through His righteousness, His love and His mercy. He loves to show His Son's value by making Him the sacrificial ram for sinners. He loves to show His worth by saying that He is the compensation, the restitution, and the expiation. He does not want you wandering over to make self-atonement. He wants you running to Calvary. Take the taxi to the cross and cling to Him. That's what He wants you to do. He's the guilt offering for you. He wants to exalt Christ in your life. That's the whole point. Do you cling to Jesus Christ? 
Do you see Him as valuable even this hour? You need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. What is your means of forgiveness for your guilt? This text is intended to make you, especially as a New Testament Christian, smile upon the work of Jesus Christ. Realize what He has done. You're not to walk out of here saying, oh, I need to be better, try harder, i got to be more holy so God will accept me. You're to walk out of here saying, praise be to God for His Son, Jesus Christ, who is my holiness and my righteousness and my forgiveness. He's the guilt offering. You're to walk out praising Christ for what He's done. As we conclude, turn to Colossians 1 and we'll read a passage and we'll pray and we'll be done. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Paul is talking to Christians. And he says, And you, plural, you all, who once were alienated, that is separated from God, hostile in mind, that's because of your alienation, you're angry with God and in sin, in mind, doing evil deeds. So the result of being alienated, hostile in mind, is sinful acts. Verse 21. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled, that is to make peace in his body of flesh, by His death, in order, check this out, to present you, to present you, Christian, holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. That is to take a sinner like me and like you and to present you before God, Yahweh, as holy, as blameless, as beyond reproach. Holiness is what we need, but it's what frightens us. Blameless is what we need because we're sinners. Beyond reproach means that no charges will stick to us. Don't you see? He's to present you as His Son is received. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is what Christ has done for you if you're in Christ. So what's the application of this truth? Well, Paul tells us, you know, you're, you're thinking of your guilt, of your sin, whether it's Satan's accusations, your conscience accusing you, or reading the Word in, in the Word's the requirements of, of us to be holy and godly are coming down upon us in the imperatives of do, do, do. And we forget that the fact that Christ has done, 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 and therefore we need to do because of what He's done. We read verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. You see what it is? Cling to Christ. What's the application? Cling to Jesus Christ. So you, get, you have guilt? Run to Christ. Don't run to make self-atonement. Run to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who is perfectly holy in His devotion to God, in His dealings with others. Let the taxi of guilt drive you to the cross where you see perfection offered perfectly in your place. And then smile upon His work like a Christian who's clothed in His righteousness and eternally satisfied in His greatness. And then you have hope that's anchored not in subjectivity, but in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this time, even now, to look at this, albeit briefly, the work of Christ as the guilt offering and so glorious to see how You care for sinners such as us. Send the only suitable substitute that we might be forgiven. You care so intimately with us and for us. Pouring out Your Son. It is so 
mind-numbing and perplexing to think that it would please you to crush Him. We know that it brings you much glory to crush the Son, that we see His worth. Christ alone is distinguished as the Savior and the Glorious One. I pray you help those here this morning, as I know all of us deal with guilt, to run to Christ, run to the cross, run to His work, to find consolation for weary souls. The One who indeed cleanses consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, help us to make much of Him in our daily lives, in our devotions, in our thoughts, everything that we do. May we run to Christ and see Him as infinitely valuable. We pray these things in His name. Amen.